Hey there, and welcome to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where we chat to interesting people about getting out of their comfort zones. We see cool people doing cool things and think, wow, that's awesome. But we don't really talk as much about the challenges that these people face to get there or the times that they had to push out of their comfort zones to get this good stuff done. These people inspire me to keep pushing out of my comfort zone and to try and be okay with the challenges and the hard stuff that is inevitable on the journey. Hopefully you guys listening get something out of these chats too, whether this is your first time here or your 34th time here. Today we've got a bit of a treat for you. I'm having a chat with Marianne Elliott. Marianne is a whole lot of things. She's a writer, a human rights advocate and consultant, a yoga teacher, a teacher of living life, and a collector, crafter, and teller of stories. So Marianne started out her career as a lawyer who developed a passion for human rights. She worked in human rights for many years, within New Zealand, in Timor-Leste, in the Gaza Strip, and in Afghanistan. If you want more of an insight into her time in Afghanistan, doing good and being well, then you should check out her book that she wrote called Zen Under Fire. And I'll throw a link in the show notes uh, so that you guys can go and have a little bit of a look at it. So today we touch on these subjects, but they aren't the bulk of the conversation. Uh, We had a relatively short time to chat and trying to cover all about Marianne and the time we had available would just have been a travesty. Now it's fair to say that Marianne is a change maker and today we get stuck into talking about change. We talk about her four areas to create change in the world and how we change and evolve as people through time. We talk about a couple of areas that align perfectly with the podcast about changing our relationship with the discomfort and finding the right level of discomfort to create change in society. Again, this is a conversation where I have heaps of notes from it, so get in touch with me if you want a copy of my thoughts on this chat. Now, this is going to be the last podcast before Christmas, but don't worry, there is an awesome one coming again for you next week too. But I just want to take a second to wish everyone a Merry Christmas wherever you are in the world, and even if you don't celebrate Christmas. Uh, I hope you have a great time with your loved ones. Uh, We're off to Hong Kong to spend a few days with my parents over there and doing a little bit of an explore uh, before we shoot over to Japan for a bit of a look around as well. So starting to get reasonably excited about that. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to listen today. And if you enjoy the chat, then make sure to share it out as a Christmas present for everyone else out there. So thanks for getting uncomfortable with me and Marianne today.
Hey, Marianne. Welcome to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. Thanks very much for sitting down and having a chat with me and uh, letting the listeners have a bit of a listen today. Thank you. Cool. And we are hanging out in Wellington uh, on the sixth floor a week after an earthquake. So everything's still a little bit uh, a little bit tense around here. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be coming back to, to normal at the moment, which is which is cool. So Marianne, I mean, there's there's a couple of things that I wanted to have a chat with you about today, um, but I think uh, probably a good starting point is to talk about you. You spent some time um, in Afghanistan, uh, working there in a in a human rights capacity. Could you give me and the listeners uh, a little bit of a insight about kind of what? what took you over there and what was uh, what were some of the drivers to get you over there, but also then what brought you back to New Zealand afterwards? Sure. So what took me to Afghanistan in the first place was a connection to the Afghan Human Rights Commission. So at the time I was working here in New Zealand for the New Zealand Human Rights Commission and the uh, some of the commissioners from Afghanistan came to Wellington I met them, I heard them talk about their work, and I was deeply moved and inspired by the fact that they were doing very similar work to us, which was sort of, you know, standing up for the rights of, well, all Afghan people, but particularly groups, minority groups and people who were vulnerable to abuse of their rights. Uh, But they were doing it in this incredibly difficult environment. You know, it's hard work wherever you do it. It's hard even here in New Zealand. But they were doing it while, you know, getting death threats, while being subjected themselves to, you know, significant logistical and personal and security challenges. And I was just incredibly inspired by them. Uh, And so I applied for a job and initially went to work with, on a project with the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission. Um, And that was a six-month project, and by the time that finished, I had really fallen into sort of, uh, kind of fallen into love with the country and found another job with the United Nations in a human rights role, which took me away from Kabul, uh, initially to Herat in the the western side of Afghanistan, near to Iran, and then eventually up into the mountains of the Hindu Kush, um, which is near near, it's like two days drive from, but near to Bamiyan, which is where the New Zealand uh, Provincial Reconstruction Team was. And I spent um, in total two years doing human rights monitoring work in those three parts of Afghanistan. By the time I was coming towards the end of that period, I uh, had really been forced to come to grips with, I would say, the, um, I guess, the compromises in the work that the international community was doing in Afghanistan. I had had some of my assumptions and beliefs about the motivation for that work, uh, the contribution that the international community was making in Afghanistan, and the benefit of our work. Some of those assumptions had really been challenged and proven to be incorrect, that we weren't being as helpful often as I thought we were, and certainly that the motivation of the international community wasn't always the well-being of the Afghan people. And with those, um, I guess, professional concerns sat alongside sort of an increasing level of personal stress and 
I think I just came to a point where I could no longer really justify the work that I was doing. The toll that it was taking on me personally, the price of being away from my family, and sort of increasingly questioning whether it was having, um, doing as much good as, as I thought it was doing when I first went. So that's sort of what brought me home, was less a kind of a desire to be back home and more a sort of a, a growing sense of disappointment or some disillusionment, I think, about um, how much positive impact my work was having. I just want to kind of talk about the, the human rights stuff you were doing in New Zealand beforehand. Did you find that in New Zealand, obviously it's a completely different situation to Afghanistan, but were there similar challenges in terms of compromises that you faced working here as well? That's a very good question. Um yeah, I guess they played out in a very different way because we have checks and balances in our democratic systems that ensure, for example, that government ministers don't send militia to the House of Senior Public mm-hmm. <laughs> officials yeah. to threaten them. But having said that, there are, of course, much more subtle ways of exerting pressure on um, senior public servants who might be doing or saying things that are embarrassing to the government and almost inevitably the work of a good human rights institution um, will be embarrassing to the government and one of the ways in New Zealand that governments often I guess um, keep some sort of limit on the effectiveness of these watchdog organisations without appearing to interfere with them is that they don't fund them very well or they don't increase their funds. So you'll see, you know, um, the watchdog, if you think of what are the watchdogs of our democracy in New Zealand, the Ombudsman is one very important one, the Human Rights Commission is one, you know, the publicly funded um, broadcaster, Radio New Zealand is one, and if you go around and look at the budgets of all of those um, watchdog institutions, you might find that they have had a funding freeze for a very long time, or they haven't had any increase in funding. Um, so it's a very, it's not direct pressure or an attempt to influence, but um, I certainly think one of the challenges we always faced um, was, you know, just simply never having the resources that you need to do the job well. Um, and the other thing probably in New Zealand, which is a, a different challenge to a challenge that we faced in Afghanistan, is that a lot of New Zealanders um, who haven't themselves ever found themselves in a position of being powerless in the face of discrimination or um, any sort of oppression, oppression, find it hard to believe that that happens in New Zealand. Um, So, you know, we had to do quite a lot of work, and human rights organisations in New Zealand still do have to do quite a lot of work to, um, I guess, communicate to people who live a fairly privileged life that their experience of the world is not everybody's experience. Uh, their experience of New Zealand is not everybody's experience. Mm. So that's, um, and you know, you talk about being uncomfortable. I think it can be very uncomfortable to recognise that you maybe move through the world with, a, with some forms of advantage that other people don't have. As human rights advocates, that's often the conversation we're having to have with people. Um, like, yeah, no. You don't see this because it doesn't happen to you. Mm. 
that happens. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think we're so wrapped up in our own reality sometimes as well and kind of your your Facebook feed and the algorithms that they feed you that everyone is the same. And I mean, I'm a white, middle-class, heterosexual male that lives in New Zealand and have only, well, relatively recently in terms of my life, become aware of how much privilege I have uh, and how much discrimination there is still in, in New Zealand society as well. Um, and it's it's really interesting when you start kind of asking yourselves those questions and kind of starting to look at it a little bit more because it, it does kind of get swept swept to one side um, through kind of a range of a range of reasons and probably one of them is actually that for the people that are privileged we're we're happier to kind of live in our bubble and think oh yeah everything's puppy dogs and butterflies and it's all it's all rosy so it's yeah it, it, I think we, we definitely need those people to point out um, discrepancies and, and to kind of keep challenging society's preconceptions about what's what is going on yeah it's interesting because on the flip side of that if you just make people uncomfortable Mm. if you just have conversations that you know elicit in people feelings of discomfort um and they have the option of tuning out of that conversation because it doesn't necessarily feel like it affects them directly, you're going to lose them. So, you know, there's a really interesting tension in there. Um, and that's partly why people like me and many others spend a lot of time trying to think about what are the, what are the ways to have this conversation that make it feel interesting and relevant to people who... Um, don't have to deal with this because it doesn't affect their daily lives but who we need to understand it because they're often people who end up in positions of power and so Mm. if they don't understand it they you know we won't actually affect change so that that sort of edge of like enough discomfort to be aware of it but not so much that you just have to tune out and never want to deal with it is kind of the edge that we're often walking in, in our campaigning work yeah yeah that's that's really interesting and that must be really challenging because it's it's quite individual to everybody that you're talking to some people are really ready to hear those ideas and others as you say will just say well no not not for me that that doesn't uh, that doesn't affect me affect me or that's kind of pushes me too far at at this time and i think probably when you're when you're trying to affect change that happens um regardless of what the what the change is and uh, one one example that i'm thinking about at the moment is kind of the rise of uh vegetarianism and veganism as well as that um there are a lot of people out there that just kind of spray the the vegan message far and wide um and that that turns a whole lot of people off um whereas it's others that say for example that the meat-free Monday that hey why don't you have a vegetarian meal once a week which is a lot more it's a lot more manageable um I don't know if you saw our La Boca Loca's taco cleanse I did see that actually do you want to tell us a little (laughs) bit more about that actually well it's interesting that you mentioned the whole you know 
that edge of talking about you know eating less meat or eating more plant-based food in a way with with La Boca Loca which is another you know which is a business that I'm involved in with my partner um, we have very deeply held commitment to being a business that um, isn't just sustainable but that is nourishing um, that's our that's our, our goal is to be nourishing not just to our customers but to our staff and to the community that we're based in but also that the process of sourcing the food should be nourishing to the planet um, that the people who are involved in growing that food or harvesting it should all be nourished by the process it's a pretty high standard um, and somewhere in that mix is this um, you know the value or the impact of um, having more plant-based food so we're actually opening a new a new restaurant in town um, here in Wellington, which is called Boquita, and it will also be Mexican food and be organic and completely ethically sourced like La Boca Loca, but it's going to be 100% plant-based. And we had a long talk about it, like, how do we how do we explain that to people in a way that um, doesn't trigger that kind of defensive reaction that you often get from people who love meat or who love dairy? So the way we've tried to really talk about it is, you know, we love vegetables. We're, it's a plant-based restaurant because we love vegetables most of us got the memo that we should be eating more vegetables and many of us are actually trying to incorporate like some 100% plant-based meals into our week and if that's you your 100% plant-based meal could be when you come and see us which is a very different message to we're vegan we're against all animal products you know only vegans are going to want to eat at this place so that's you know that's really it's interesting that you use that example because we've been uh, really quite consciously um, talking about this 100% plant-based restaurant and in a way which is not about you should eat this way all the time but if you're wanting to eat this way more of the time then you can come here get your dinner on a Tuesday night and you know that was your plant-based meal for the week so yeah it is about you know for us obviously for a business it's always about making it easy for people making it um, easy to make the changes that they want to make in their life. Yeah, yeah, I think that. I mean, the easier you can you can make things, um, the the more people are going to sort of commit to then becoming a habit as well. And I, and I know from working as a as a physiotherapist, you don't want to give people hard exercises to do or exercises that are. You want to give people hard exercises physically, but you don't want to give them ones that are challenging for them to complete um, otherwise they're never going to do it um, which is a little bit of a segue so coming coming back um, have you kind of noticed a little bit of crossover in your thought processes around that um, change creation from both of those different angles yeah so I um, over the past sort of eight years I've been back from Afghanistan for nearly nine years now and prior to that I spent a decade working predominantly um, well not predominantly but yeah probably in total most of my time was overseas I worked in the Gaza Strip I worked in Timor-Leste and I worked in Afghanistan as well as working on and off here in New Zealand so then I've been home based in Wellington for for nearly most of this most recent decade and the three actually the four areas that I've devoted my sort of working energy to 
are probably like the four kind of theories I have about how change happens. So the first one was um, when I came back from Afghanistan, I was really clear that in order to be useful as somebody who wanted to create positive change in the world, I needed to take better care of myself. So the first stream of work was that I studied to be become a yoga teacher. I studied to teach meditation. I studied about you know sort of neuroscience and nutrition and um, mostly about improving my own well-being, but also learning how to be useful to other people with a particular interest in supporting people who do change work to take care of themselves. So that's kind of like my first line of like how do we create change in the world is about our um, personal well-being, being able to balance our own nervous system so that we're not operating from a place of um, just sort of activation and um, hypervigilance all the time um, and physically building up our strength and fitness and stamina so that we can do the work we want to do in the world. And then the second strand is my, I guess what I think of as my campaigning or advocacy work, which is about there are there are things that um, that we see, most of us, when we look out into the world, whether it's homelessness or families that aren't earning enough money to provide the basics for their children, or whether it's you know a healthcare system that is sort of stretched at the outer limits and not able to meet the needs of people who are in mental health crisis. There's all sorts of things that we see, and there are uh, lots of ways that you can, you know, get involved in making change. But the one that I'm really passionate about is policy change. I think um, there's a lot that communities can do, but communities really can only flourish when they're supported by national policies, policies at the national level that are designed to support communities to flourish. When you have a government that is making policies and setting priorities that put people and communities and families first. And we don't have that at the moment. So that's my second kind of area of change is that I believe politicians um, in a country like New Zealand will follow the people. Um, we vote for them. We put them in power. We keep them in power. So they actually are looking to us all the time to say, what do people want from us? What do the voters actually want us to do? What are the issues they care about? What do they care about enough that they actually expect us to do better on? And so that's the whole my whole second area is like, how do we um, engage as collective groups of concerned citizens to effectively communicate to politicians that we want change on these issues? And we can't wait until an election. We need to be doing that, um, you know, throughout the democratic cycle. So that's the second thread of my work, which I do mostly through Action Station. Previously worked at um, other organisations like Oxfam, and I'm involved with Amnesty um, International in New Zealand as well. The third strand for me is about um, ethical business. Um, business enterprises, uh, you know, have a lot of impact in our communities. So that's the kind of Lavakaloka strand, which is uh, around, you know, we might not have a government which currently is prioritising employment policies that care for people. But we can run a business that insists on having employment policies that care for people. We can have you know, a commitment to the living wage because we know the minimum wage isn't enough for people to live on. We can have a commitment to having our staff on permanent contracts rather on 
rather than what often happens in hospitality, which is people are on casual contracts and you know have insecure work and no um, access to leave. So we can just make those choices. We don't have to wait for the policies to be there. And as a business, if we show that it's possible, that's also one way to um, to help. I think, create an environment in which it becomes politically more viable for, for governments to make those policy changes. And then the fourth area for me where I'm interested in creating change is through, um, I guess, what I, what I would call storytelling. So like what you're doing with this podcast, um, I write, I write um, um, op-eds for newspapers, I write, you know, I write blog posts for various publications, um, I write hundreds of emails to Action Station members. Um, I wrote a book about my time in Afghanistan. And um, I really believe that the, um, the possibilities that we're able to imagine in the world are largely defined by the stories that we've heard. Um, so if we're stuck and we feel like we can't imagine how the world could be different, then we probably need to be exposed to new and different stories. So that's the fourth so it's quite comprehensive. I have mm. basically a four-part theory of change and I have, like, my life is divided up into putting energy into all of those. And then I guess the final thing, which almost goes without saying, but it's worth mentioning, is, like, I really believe that we change the world by the way that we treat the people who are closest to us. So I, I always try to prioritise being available to my friends and family, um, being a good neighbour, <laughs> like, literally just, you know being somebody who my next door neighbour can rely on to babysit. Because um, I think if we do have those kind of you know, strong bonds at the community level, then we, we are more resilient and we're more able to overcome you know, some of the challenges of a less compassionate um, economy, which is what we have at the moment. Cool. I really, really like that, uh, <laughs> that kind of overarching philosophy that you have there. How long did it take for you to develop that? That obviously wasn't something that was, or was that something that you kind of knew when you were eighteen that you were like, "Well, oh, this is, this is how it should, <laughs> I should be doing this." Yeah, no, I would say when I was eighteen, um, I probably would have been predominantly out of those those different areas of change. My predominant area of interest was in sort of legal and policy, so that changing. Um, at the systemic level. Like if the laws could be changed, then that would better protect people who needed better protection. And I guess it was at each, you know, different phases of my life have taught me different pieces of that. Like there's definitely a phase early in my life where I realized that the person, people who needed me most at that time were my family. And actually if I couldn't show up for my family, then whatever I was doing at a national level was on some level not in integrity. And then when I was in Afghanistan was when I really came to understand like the need to integrate that personal care and personal well-being. Um, and it was probably not really until I left Afghanistan and wrote my book and had this quite unsettling experience of realising that that book reached more people in the world with the human rights issues that I was trying to um talk about in Afghanistan than anything else I could have possibly done and that it was having ripple effects that I will never know. Um, occasionally I'll get an email from somebody who's got my book from somebody else and this is somebody who works at USAID and they're interested in implications for US policy and you realise, you know, 
just telling those stories are having an impact. But so I guess it's um, you know it's different phases in my life. I kind of deepened my understanding of change has to happen on lots of levels. Uh, and probably that sort of social enterprise, ethical business would be the last piece that came into it for me. And that was really because my partner Lucas wanted to have a restaurant and I was quite resistant to the idea. I was like, why would I have a restaurant? That's not a, it's not going to change the world. Like I need to be doing work that's changing the world and I've only got so much energy. I can't use it up on a restaurant. That's kind of seems sort of frivolous to me. So we really had to talk it through and I realized you know, his theory of change at the time was that food and how food is sourced and how it's produced and how it moves around the world and the people who work to grow it and harvest it and process it and then make it and serve it in our hospitality industry, like, is a huge area for social change. And that his interest was to, um, not just to try and get policies to change, but actually to be a model of, like, what could the food what could a food business look like if it refused to compromise on those things? Mm. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And I think that that last one as well relates back to looking after yourself as well. As if you're eating good food, mm. then your your perf- performance is often so much better than than if you're not. So mm. there's a lot of a lot of crossover with that. An interesting point you made um, was you only have a certain amount of energy to kind of deliver to all of these different things that you're doing how do you how do you keep that in balance or do you keep it in balance or do you kind of jump back and forth between them based on your your priorities yeah I don't I mean I I guess balance I think of as being a very organic state that Mm. I think orgasms orgasms. (laughs) I'm not going to edit that out (laughs) I don't know quite how that relates to balance but I do feel like, you know, natural organisms find a balance. And it's not, because I'm always a bit uncomfortable with this idea of like, balance means mm. I spend this amount of time on this and I have this amount of sleep and I spend this amount of time not working. And like some weeks it looks like that and some weeks it looks like I work 100 hours and other weeks I'm, you know, leading up to training for a big, big, like an endurance race and I'm spending, you know, th- 30 hours out of the week I'm out training so balance for me is very variable and I always the way I try to think of it is I know when I'm in balance because I feel well and I can feel well when I'm in a you know like a peak a work peak of like moving towards a big deadline or high energy on a big project but I can feel that I'm well um or you can usually, I guess if you're well attuned to yourself, um, sort of physically, psychically, emotionally, um, then you can tell when you're out of balance. And I, I wouldn't be doing that by looking at how many hours I'd spent on different things. Um, except maybe sleep. Sleep's probably the one thing that can't be out of whack for too long. Yeah, so I have a very uh, fluid t- approach to balance. And also I would say... Um, I have to probably confess, like I grew up on a dairy farm and anybody who grew up on a dairy farm probably will relate to this. Like people who grow up on dairy farms do not have any concept of leisure. You do not, there's no free time, there's no hobbies, there's no leisure activities. There's seven days a week, you know, 52 weeks a year you work. You work every single day. You wake up and you milk cows and you work. And so I also, um, I realized that my normal 
in terms of work is not other people's normal. I didn't grow up with weekends or, you know, leisure time. I didn't grow up with people coming home from work at 5.30 and being off for the rest of the evening. Like, Dad would have dinner and then he'd go back out to the farm or, you know, would be. So my um, my notion of balance, work-life balance, is probably not other people's. Uh, I like it, though. Mm. I like it. It's kind of, it's very fluid. Um, mm. And I think life is, life is pretty fluid as well, is that you're not going to have a nice sort of linear... Um, nice linear demands all the time on your on yourself that it's uh, yeah sometimes it sometimes you've got to go hard and other times you you need to ease back off and uh, have a bit more rest. Um, I'm just mindful of the time, so yes. I want to get in and ask <laughs> you the questions that we usually ask everybody. Marianne, can you tell me about the last uncomfortable thing that you did and uh, how you got through it? Yes, uh, I want. Uh, I'm kind of proud of this, so I, I like. I have to get it in. Um, I recently <laughs> did my first ultra marathon. It was a 60 kilometer run um, along the Waikato River, and as you would imagine, it was pretty uncomfortable. But it was much less uncomfortable than I anticipated, because a year previously, I did my first trail marathon. And it was extremely uncomfortable. And so I changed some things. And so I guess uh, rather than getting through the discomfort, I feel like I changed some things that made my relationship with the discomfort completely different. One of the things I changed was that um, I let go of any idea about the time frame within which I wanted to complete this ultra marathon because so much of the discomfort of the marathon wasn't physical it was mental there was there came a moment when I realized I wasn't going to do it in the time that I had set for myself and that caused me a lot of mental discomfort I was sort of angry with myself and disappointed with myself and it spoiled the race so the one that I did recently my goal was to finish it and that was it and so it enabled me to be completely present in the part of the race that I was running and enjoying it. And it was amazing to me that I actually enjoyed the whole thing. And there That's were periods when I was pretty physically uncomfortable, but I was super proud of myself that I was still going. I was like, yeah, my legs are tired and my hips are you know, not feeling so great and I'm a little bit nauseous right now, but I'm moving and that was my goal and I felt great about that. So that was a really interesting just like sh- mental shift for me. It was sort of like a um, just by focusing on enjoying the bit of the race that I was in. Or even I wasn't asking myself to enjoy it. Just like running the bit of the race that I was in, uh, it completely shifted my relationship to the discomfort. And I realized that what's going on in our head totally dictates the relationship we have to what's happening in our bodies. So that was a big one for me. I feel like. So now my next goal is the um, the 85-kilometer Tarawera in February. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and I feel pretty confident about it now because now I know that you just keep going, mm. which yeah. sounds very simple and it yeah. kind of is. <laughs> your, your body's amazing, I think, in that what you can get it to do if you mm. can convince your mind that it's it's capable of it. I've just recorded a podcast who, with a guy that has just finished a six-day race walk and mm. walked over 600Ks in that time, which was 
obviously you need some form of physical fitness before you do that but mm. so much of it is mental so it's it, that's really interesting mm. what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do <laughs> other than the 85 kilometer um well interestingly the I'm going to do the 85 kilometer race with an athlete called Mary Fisher who is a blind athlete um she was in Rio actually won a gold medal cool in Rio for mm. swimming um and I, so I'm learning now to, to um, guide Mary. So we run together, we do trail running together, and I guide her. And um, that actually was a little, that was an uncomfortable edge for me to have that responsibility. Well, I, I guess I experienced it as having that responsibility for somebody else's well-being. And last, uh, we've been out a few times together now, and last weekend I was out with her, and um, a couple of times I failed to... I guess adequately described the terrain underfoot um, and she tripped twice and I I felt terrible but she was she was like of course I trip up <laughs> you know like I'm a blind person running on a trail <laughs> yeah. you know like I'm gonna trip sometimes and it was quite good because it was sort of like that discomfort for me which was like what if I fail what if I let her down was sort of um, like it happened the thing that I was afraid of and it wasn't so terrible and um yeah so now I feel I feel um, obviously I do not want her to fall um but I think I've kind of got past the discomfort of this fear of you know making a mistake or letting her down and um now I'm yeah I'm pretty excited actually about doing that event with her cool yeah that sounds that sounds amazing Marianne I've got just a couple of quick questions for you but I just Mm. want to say thank you for your time today but also thank you for asking questions and challenging people's beliefs but also uh, kind of being a a demonstration of kind of ways that we can change and and look to live better kind of more inclusive healthier lifestyles it's it's really cool to to see um first question is real easy for you if people want to find out more about you or follow along uh with the stuff that you're doing where can they go so for the um the activism stuff the advocacy work we do i do that through action station so that's action station.org.nz um my book is called zen under fire uh, and you can find that and information about the yoga courses that I teach on my website, marianne-elliot.com. And uh, yeah, if you want to check out organic, ethical, sustainable Mexican food, that's La Boca Loca and Boquita will be opening in Cambridge Terrace in Wellington next week. Awesome. Fingers crossed. Relying on builders and <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the uncomfortable process of uh, building anything yeah so and i'm on twitter um at zen peacekeeper cool and i'm always pretty chatty there awesome i'll put a whole lot of links to that into the notes mm. for the show as well but before we finish up do you have any life lessons advice or interesting facts to leave me and the listeners with um i think the one i want to leave you with is we were talking about different ways of creating change in the world For a long time, the only question I asked was, what is the most effective way to create change? Like, what is the action that will create the most change, the most good for the most people? And I thought, that's what I should be doing. And then 
it really wasn't until in my 30s that it occurred to me to ask, and in what kind of work do I thrive? Because I'm also allowed to thrive while I'm doing this work to create good in the world. So um, that's probably like, like my like my big revelation is that it's okay to also ask, what is the work in which I thrive? And then, you know, orient your life around work that you that you love and which you thrive and which you you believe is contributing in some way to to a kind of a net positive impact on the world because I think if you can find those two things where they overlap it's a pretty sweet spot and life is pretty good cool Mm. thank you very much for that it was awesome well I hope you guys enjoyed that Uh, I know I did when I was chatting with Mary Ann and if you enjoyed it make sure to share it out uh, amongst your friends and family I think we covered some interesting topics in relation to change and also in relation to to balance and getting out of your comfort zone. I had a a great time having a chat with Marianne. Now, again, have a very Merry Christmas and make sure that you uh, spread a lot of love and have a safe time over the festive period. If you want to give me a present then the best thing that you can do is hit subscribe to the podcast and your favorite app and leave a review for it as well. That'd be an awesome Christmas present. Or alternately, send me a message on the Facebook page, Uncomfortable is Okay. Send me a message on Twitter, at Chris Desmond NZ, or on Instagram, at Uncomfortable is Okay. Or alternately, you can pop me an email at uncomfortableisokay at gmail.com and just let me know what you're up to for Christmas and if you've got any exciting uncomfortable things coming up. Cheers guys, we'll see you next week.